0: Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Love can bind us, but money corrupts us. While most of us can agree with that, Houston-based boxing trainer Ramon Sosa lived it. Well, he lived it until he almost died from it. Sosa, a self-made man, seemed to have it all, including Lulu, the beautiful wife and business partner. However, like so many marriages, this one started to fray. But unlike many divorces, this one took a path towards murder, until one person stepped in, even though so much of what he needed to do went against everything he was raised to know. Stick around after the story for my conversation with ESPN investigative reporter Tisha Thompson as we talk about how a delicate balance of beliefs can save a life and a soul. Now we present Dead Man Walking by Tisha
1: Thompson and Kevin Shaw. The police camera clicked, click, 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 click. Each snap shattered a silence brought on by Houston's suffocating summertime heat. The lens pointed into a waist-deep hole. At the bottom of the freshly dug grave lay a man in his late 40s with what appeared to be blood running from a gunshot wound to his right temple. More blood trailed from his nose. The man, clad in nothing but his underwear, had his arms pulled beneath his back as though he'd been bound. Detectives from the Montgomery County Constable's Office already knew his identity. Ramon Sosa, one of the best-known boxing trainers in Southeast Texas. A former professional fighter, he taught pros and Olympic hopefuls how to spar the fast-paced Puerto Rican way. Dozens of kids from gangs and troubled backgrounds had funneled through his nonprofit Young Prospects Boxing Program. He also owned a successful gym less than two miles from the spot, surrounded by heavy forest on all sides and well hidden from the bedroom community known as the Woodlands. The detectives knew, too, that Sosa's gym brought in about $20,000 a month, allowing the trainer and his wife to buy a fancy new house, cars, motorcycles, and designer shoes and watches gangs and money. That's what might have been behind this grim scene. But it wasn't a predictable crime at all. Once the camera stopped clicking, the lead detective spoke. We're done, Mr. Sosa. You can get up now. And with that, the man at the bottom of the grave opened his eyes. A decade earlier in another part of Houston, a young man known as Mundo walked out of jail. He had just been acquitted after spending 14 months inside on a violent felony charge. Mundo joined his local gang when he was 12 and was shot six times in three incidents before he went to jail. When he got out, his future wife gave him an ultimatum. Pick her or pick the violent neighborhood where he grew up. He chose her and moved to the other side of town. He was looking around the area for gyms and stumbled on a little place where one of the trainers, Ramon Sosa, always seemed to be surrounded by young fighters. His technique was different. Puerto Rican boxing, Mundo says. He looked like a professional boxer. And I was like, I want that. Sosa was from Puerto Rico, having moved to Houston when he was very young. He had returned to the island when he became a professional boxer at 17, but quickly grew disillusioned with a business in which he says people are trying to make money off of you in so many different ways. It was nothing but a piece of meat. He returned to Houston and discovered that his real calling wasn't in the center of the ring, but in the corner. Sosa began training pros from the Houston area, traveling to fights in Las Vegas and New Jersey. He visited the Playboy Mansion and posed for photos next to Hugh Hefner and Mike Tyson. Boxing at the professional level, it's entertainment, he says. You get to see a lot of celebrities, all bills paid and everything. But he soured on the pro scene again and turned to young amateurs. They do it for the heart, for love, for something other than money, he says. He had been a trainer for some 20 years when Mundo appeared in the little gym in 2005. He was different, Sosa remembers. He said he didn't want to fight. He wanted to learn how to box. The relationship, Mundo says, was the first time any male figure took an interest in his life. He set the ground rules, Mundo says. He took it upon himself to check up on me. He didn't have to do that. It meant a lot. Recalls Sosa. He told me what had happened to him, the problems that he had with the law, that he was a gang member. Mundo walked away from the gang and into Sosa's corner. Sosa, in turn, would later launch a nonprofit as a way to reach other kids like Mundo, who remembers thinking that he and Ramon could, quote, save one and every kid that came into the gym. And so it went for the next two years, until a night in 2007 when a woman stepped on Ramon Sosa's toe. Her name was Maria Lourdes Durantes, but everyone called her Lulu. She was long and lean, with dark hair and swaying hips. I saw her when I first walked in, Ramon says. She was on the dance floor. They were playing salsa. I said, man, this is a beautiful lady. Ramon had worn a Versace sweater and one of his most expensive watches to get inside the trendy Latin club in the woodlands. He bought a beer and planned to just watch Lulu dance. But when she walked past him, she stepped on his toe with what he swears were six-inch heels. They hurt. I was like, oh my goodness, I see stars. I bent down and she was asking, please, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what can I do? Ramon asked her to dance. It was the start of a whirlwind courtship. I think she caught me, captivated me, he says. This is a person that gives you massages, manicures, pedicures. If I had a drink, she would not even let me finish my drink. She would give me another one, serve my plate. She was just overboard as far as the way she treated me. Lulu had followed a wave of Mexican expats to the Woodlands, entering the United States on a visitor visa. Not legally allowed to work in the States, she paid the bills cleaning houses and working as a masseuse until she and Sosa married in 2009. A year and a half later, they opened Woodlands Boxing and Fitness. I was very happy, Ramon says, very happy to see my dreams come true. The gym pulled in about 200 clients. We are talking about 18 to 20 K a month, says Ramon, who has always worked a full-time job at a shipping company in addition to training boxers. We bought a brand spanking new two-story home. We bought motorcycles and cars. And Lulu liked to dress nice. She always loved to go into the store and buy everything you can think of. Money was spent. It was very good. Mundo vividly remembers the first time he saw Lulu. She walked into the gym just calling the shots, he says. She put in a lot of work. She basically took care of the business. The Sosas embraced Mundo, making him a part of their family. I wasn't even looking for a father, he says, but that's what Ramon acted like. And Lulu acted like a good friend. Ramon sponsored Lulu, her mother, and her two teenage children to help them obtain U.S. citizenship. It took about three years. Only then, Ramon says, did cracks appear in their marriage including an altercation during a vacation to Puerto Rico. She knew what buttons to push to agitate me, Ramon says. We got into a little back and forth. When Lulu told Ramon she was going to call his mother, he remembers pulling the phone out of her hand and telling her, the problem is between you and me, not my mother. I'm a grown man. He says Lulu called hotel security and claimed he was abusing her. After listening to both sides, the head of security told them to sleep in separate bedrooms. In March 2015, Lulu filed for divorce. She wanted everything, Ramon says. She just wanted for me to leave and she keeps everything. He remembers telling her, if you want a divorce, we are going to divorce the right way. We split everything. But no, she wanted it all, he says. And that's where things get rough. According to Ramon, Lulu contacted sponsors of his nonprofit and accused him of embezzling money, causing them to drop young prospects and forcing the group to close. Lulu also told friends and clients that Ramon had abused her. His relatives, including his mother and adult daughter, tell Outside the Lines they never witnessed him hitting any family member, including Lulu. Investigators would later say they found no evidence to suggest any malfeasance involving young prospects, nor any evidence that led them to believe any of the abuse allegations against Ramon. Lulu also complained about Ramon to Mundo, who tried to stay out of the situation. Tried. Tried is a good word, Mundo says. More like dragged into it. Three months after Lulu filed for divorce, Mundo walked into the gym on a hot night. Lulu was in the office with her teenage daughter. They were having a talk regarding some kid that had been at the gym about his uncle being some kind of killer down in Mexico, Mundo says. They were saying he cuts up bodies. Mundo walked into the office when he next heard Lulu wonder aloud if the uncle could help with our situation. He was pretty sure the situation was Ramon and encouraged Lulu to confide in him. Mundo says Lulu started to talk the next morning. I'm just tired. I'm frustrated. He remembers her saying, I wish he will leave. I wish the cops would pick him up. I just wish somebody will make him disappear. According to Mundo, he asked, What do you mean disappear? When he made a pistol sign with his fingers, Lulu replied, Yeah, I'm numb, Mundo remembers. I know what she wants. He walked to a punching bag to start his workout. But instead of hitting the bag hard like he normally would, he barely tapped it, too distracted by the thoughts swirling in his mind. He punched one last time and returned to Lulu. He said, I might know somebody. Paco was so revered in his gang that his face had been painted on a mural at least two stories high. Paco's like the badass, Mundo says. Paco and John Boy, those were the men he would contact. At least, that's the story he concocted for Lulu. As soon as he walked out of the gym, Mundo made the call, but not to Paco. Instead, he called Ramon, saying, this lady wants to kill you. Shut the f*** up, Ramon told him. Stop playing. Don't play like that. Ramon remembers Mundo saying, I've seen that look in people that want to kill before and this lady wants to kill you. I was in shock. I was angry. I didn't know what to do, Ramon says. But Mundo had a plan. I told Ramon, look, you're going to play the hitman. You're going to buy another phone, a throwaway. Mundo explained the phone would be used as if it were Paco's. They went over the details and agreed Mundo should relay the message on the new phone that for the right price, Paco would be willing to kill Ramon. Later, as Lulu watched, Mundo texted the burner phone back with her offer, $1,000 cash, along with Ramon's pickup truck. In the text message, Mundo says, Paco, I'm here with the Patrona. Y'all guys take a truck in 1G after job done. 07 white single cab 20-inch rims. See or no? Paco texted back, I talked with John Boy, and it's all good, homie. Just need the tools. Mundo's choice of the name Paco wasn't random. He was a character in the 1993 crime drama Blood In, Blood Out, the story of three Chicanos navigating gang life in Los Angeles. Paco, played by Benjamin Bratt, was so admired and feared that another character paints his portrait on a concrete wall alongside the Los Angeles River. At the end of the movie, Paco, it turns out, is an undercover cop, Mundo says. He was sending Lulu a warning. It was cryptic, Mundo says, but you know, it just felt right. Mundo started to secretly record his conversations with Lulu, hoping to gather evidence for Ramon. In one recording, she sorts through Ramon's watch collection, a golden one, a Belova, she says in Spanish, and a black one, which is a fossil. She decides to use various watches and expensive jewelry and an additional $500 cash as a down payment. Just before the July 4th holiday, Lulu handed Mundo $100 for the fictional hitman to buy a stolen gun. With the cash in hand, Ramon and Mundo agreed that Ramon should go to the police. But Ramon wanted Mundo to go too, a difficult step for a former gang member sworn to never talk to the police about anything. Even if I try to make people understand that it's to save my friend's life, he explains, it's still seen as snitching, ratting. Just walking into the Montgomery County Precinct 3 Constable's office caused Mundo physical pain. My heart got knotted up, he remembers. The back of my head was all knotted up. In the interrogation video, a detective asks Mundo, has she specifically used the word dead? Yeah, Mundo responds, pointing to a text message on his phone. Morita. In the video, Mundo spends more than an hour telling detectives everything Lulu told him. He hands over the $100 and the recordings he's made and allows the detectives to download the text messages she had sent to his phone. Near the very end of the video, Mundo decides to reveal his past. I used to be a gang member, he says. I've got a criminal past, so I'm pretty sure that's what attracted her to me. He tries to explain to the officers that coming forward could put him in danger. I broke a major code, he says. There will be consequences. Lieutenant Mike Atkins describes sitting across the table from Mundo as kind of surreal. He remembers thinking, is this legit? Because there's a divorce that is pending. He checked out Lulu's complaints about Ramon and found no evidence to support them. When he sorted through Mundo's criminal record, his background coincided with the story of his life, Atkins says. Yes, he did get into a bit of trouble when he was a youngster, but there was no recent activity. That background, maybe more than anything, convinced Atkins to believe Mundo. Knowing the code from where he came from, people who snitch are not looked at favorably, the officer says... So his coming in this office, under his own free will, showed a lot of character. Atkins ultimately determined that Ramon's life was seriously in danger. He asked Mundo to keep recording Lulu. Mundo hated the idea, but agreed. I can't say no, he says. Somebody's life is in the balance. Mundo recorded at least 12 conversations, all in Spanish, over the course of three weeks, according to records O.T.L. obtained from the constable's office. In one, Lulu tells Mundo that Ramon might sign divorce papers on July 22nd. Mundo, I'm desperate. I can't stand this anymore. I have a giant headache, she says in Spanish in the recording. I have everything to lose. I'm sick, sick, sick of all this paperwork. She complains that she won't get any alimony, that Ramon is no longer paying the mortgage, and that she's running out of cash. That f***er hasn't given me a single penny since February, she fumes. Nothing. She adds, they better kill him before the 22nd that way I'll have insurance for life, a pension for life. My life will be all figured out. Mundo, do you know what I'm saying? He has worked hard all his life for his retirement. Well, now it's time for me to work hard on my retirement. This is my retirement, Mundo. His life is my retirement. Mundo asks, so from here until the court date, do you want to have him killed? Yes. On the recordings, Mundo tells Lulu several times that she can abandon her plan. If you've changed your mind, you've changed your mind. Nothing happens. Nobody's forcing you to do it. It's a decision I already made, Lulu says. If I say it, I do it. In one final attempt, Mundo texts Lulu in Spanish. Just remember, once he's dead, there's no coming back from that. Lulu wrote back, also in Spanish, clearer than water. The hidden camera video pans up the side of a car with the words Woodlands Boxing emblazoned on the door. A woman with dark, glossy hair and a Mona Lisa smile sits in the driver's seat. Mundo, wearing the hidden camera, encourages Lulu to get out of her car to meet Paco, sitting in a pickup parked nearby. Lulu never suspects that Paco is actually an undercover officer as she climbs into the front seat of the officer's truck. Just as Mundo gets into the back seat, the officer's deep voice asks in Spanish, What's up? Lulu vents in Spanish. Well, what hasn't he done to me, that SOB? I mean, I just can't deal with all of this. The undercover officer replies, this guy, do you want him to be pretty beaten up? Well, f***ed over. Do you want us to beat him up or what? No, no beating, Lulu says without hesitation. I want him dead. Do you want to talk to him? Give him a last message, the officer asks. No, I don't want to talk to him, Lulu says. You just want him f***ed over. You want him dead. I want him dead, Lulu affirms. For me, it is better if he is dead than for him to continue screwing up my life. Atkins watched from another undercover vehicle as Lulu handed over her down payment. I was struck by the lack of emotion, he says. When you deal with someone who has no emotion, shows no empathy, no sympathy, those are truly, truly dangerous individuals. Mundo remembers getting out of the truck with Lulu. We shake hands. I don't want to touch her, not because of hate. It was just sadness. I feel like I betrayed her as a friend, he says. But Lulu pulled his arm in for a hug. I think I held on for like two more seconds because I knew what time it was, he says. You know what's about to happen, but they don't. Officers learned how to fake Ramon's death by watching makeup tutorials on YouTube. They went to the grocery store for corn syrup and food coloring to make the blood, and borrowed the makeup kit normally used for disaster drills. It looked like Halloween stuff they use for kids, Ramon says. It looks very, very amateur what they're doing, but they did it right. Ramon remembers Atkins telling him, we need something that is going to be a slam dunk case. The detectives had enough evidence to arrest Lulu, but worried a jury might feel sorry for a beautiful woman with no police record, which is how Ramon found himself on the floor of an unmarked SUV as officers drove into a restricted area where dump trucks unload debris collected from county work sites. It was there, among the piles of earth, that they dug the grave. It wasn't cold, but it was eerie, Ramon says. I was sitting there with my eyes closed, thinking, what am I doing? What the heck am I doing here? I thought about Lulu. Like, why did it have to come down to this? It could have been a simple divorce. It should never have happened. In that moment, he says, he realized she never loved me. On July 22nd, Lulu climbed back into a truck that was supposed to be Paco's. This time, two hidden cameras capture her face as the officer tells her in Spanish, we got him in the morning. Lulu shows no visible reaction. She simply states, I've got $1,000. The agent holds out a phone showing her a photo of Ramon in the grave. What do you think, he asks. Lulu still betrays no emotion. Instead, she digs for details. The undercover officer gives her just enough. Ramon fought for his life. He didn't want to die. The truck is at a chop shop. Lulu calmly suggests that they use FaceTime to prevent the police from tracking their communications. She pauses a moment and then says he won't get up anymore. And that's when she laughs. That was bone chilling, Atkins says. The next morning with Ramon in hiding, officers went to the gym telling Lulu they received a missing person report for her husband. She doesn't have an explanation of where Ramon is. She hasn't seen him, Atkins says. So we have her lying to us immediately. Police video shows officers placing Lulu in handcuffs in front of her mother and teenage daughter. They transported her to the same interrogation room in which they interviewed Mundo. At this point, I think she has accepted that she was duped, Atkins says. It's all coming to her now. She told police she wouldn't speak without her lawyer. And with that, police took her to jail. Fifteen months later, in October 2016, Lulu pleaded guilty to solicitation of capital murder. She never looked at Ramon as a judge sentenced her to 20 years in prison. No one from her family ever spoke publicly in her defense. Lulu's last attorney of record said he was not authorized to speak on her behalf. Lulu, now 44 and housed in a state prison in Gatesville, Texas, never responded to letters ESPN wrote seeking her side of the story. Through a prison spokesman, she refused an interview request. Ramon's last image of Lulu was of her leaving the courtroom in a pink jumpsuit and handcuffs. Mundo sits near the spot in the gym where he told Lulu he might know somebody. The lights have all been turned off, the gym's door has been locked, and its regular clients told to come back later. Only a single light shines behind Mundo, creating a dark silhouette of his head on the camera monitors as he's interviewed by ESPN for TV. I appreciate this opportunity, he says, because nobody, nobody ever had asked me, you know, how do you feel? Everybody was broken in a certain way, he says. It wasn't just Ramon. Lulu as well. Me as well, you know. Lulu's case was widely covered by the Houston media, with Ramon giving quick sound bites at her sentencing. But then a TV show outed Mundo and an undercover officer, showing their faces on television and revealing Mundo's legal name. The constable's office got involved, and the story was pulled off the internet, but it was already too late. The time had come to pay the consequences. It was like a wave, man, Munda says with a huge sigh. He's received threats of home invasion, threats against his life, and against his wife, children, and other family members who still live in the old neighborhood. Everybody's alive. That's how I try to reconcile everything, he says. Somebody is alive and nobody's dead, at least for right now. He pauses. I hope nobody ever dies. He closes his eyes and takes a deep breath. I'm just thinking of my family. That's all I think about now. He self-published a novel titled My Son Mundo. It's a story of a man, quote, forced to make a final decision after he's drawn back into conflict with the law due to a threat to his mentor and boxing trainer. Some of it really happened, Mundo says, but some of it didn't. He wrote the book to make enough money to get his family out of Houston. For me to have a happy ending and security for my family, he says. But what about Mundo? Is he worried about himself? No, he says. And then his eyes well up. He covers his face with his hands. Just as quickly, he pulls it away. He tips his head back and takes an angry breath through his nose. He's pissed, ready to fight, not box, fight. I don't like your question. Mundo's a tough cat, Atkins says. He grew up in a tough neighborhood. I think he's a tough customer. He gave Mundo his direct line and told him to call any time. However, Atkins says... I have not spoken with him since. Mundo has taken precautions to protect himself, but he says he has not received the help he was promised. Certain people said they were going to help me with security, you know, upgrade my security. They didn't do. You're left for yourself. No, it shouldn't be like that. Is he talking about Ramon? Mundo almost doesn't answer. If somebody helps you and helps save your life, you shouldn't leave them out to dry. You shouldn't do that. Ramon, now 51, doesn't shy away when asked about Mundo's intimation. We don't talk as much as we used to, you know. We kind of drifted a little bit apart, Ramon says. He doesn't understand that Lulu left me with a lot of debt. Ramon, who continues working his day job while also training fighters, recently declared bankruptcy and has moved out of his house and the gym he and Lulu shared. He lives in a small apartment and has put all of their possessions into storage. This is all she left me with, he says, pulling out clear plastic bags containing his watches and the cash Lulu paid. Evidence of how she tried to kill me. Maybe one day I'll have a bonfire, he says. You know, just burn everything. He locks up the storage space and gets in his pickup, the one with the 20-inch rims. I spend a lot of time alone now, to be honest with you, he says. Psychologically, I'm still not doing well. I still have nightmares. He wonders whether Lulu stepped on his foot intentionally in that nightclub. I was a good husband. I treated her well, he says. All I've got to say is God, my God, knows what really happened. Ramon says he's repairing his life one issue at a time. Mundo's always going to be on that list, he says. He's always up there, a priority. He's very special to me. Very, very special. He's trying to find himself again, Mundo says. I'm trying not to take it personally. Atkins considers Mundo a boxer who never competed, whose face you'll never see, whose name you'll never know. A hero for having the moral courage to come in here and stand up and do what was right. I appreciate his point of view, Mundo says, but you know, to some people, I'm still a rat. He pauses for a moment and asks rhetorically, what would you do in my situation? He knew the rules. He knew the consequences. I saved my friend's life. That's all that matters.
0: Joining me now is ESPN investigative reporter Tisha Thompson. Tisha, welcome. Thank you for the time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: This is from this story from, literally you could take out chunks of it and it would still be unbelievably fascinating. And while Ramon Sosa is the, as the title of the story, is the dead man walking here, to me... Mundo is the most fascinating character because the way you could, the piece really got across his, his sort of mental anguish and all this. It speaks to the level of survival and ethics that so few people in the rest of the society understand. Well, it seems like he, he had a life like where there is violence. Yes, it was probably done out of self preservation. You know, the best defense is a good offense and there's loyalty and honor but not beyond the borders of the wall that they live in. And I just found his conflict that seemed to come out through everything to be the most fascinating aspect of the story.
1: Well, and he continues to be incredibly conflicted. I I remember asking him, we did a three-hour interview with him, and I've been in touch with him ever since that interview, and I remember asking him during that three-hour interview, why would you do this? You know, you know the consequences. You know that you're putting your own life in jeopardy. You could become the real dead man walking, right? And uh, he said the way he has always looked at it is everybody is alive. And, yes, Lulu, his very, very good friend, is now in prison, but she's alive. Ramon Mm -hmm. is alive, and he wants to keep everybody alive. He said that if Ramon had come to him, And said, I want to kill Lulu, which, of course, Ramon never thought about. But if he had done it, he would have done the same thing to Ramon that he did to Lulu. It's not that he was picking Ramon over Lulu, that he was picking keeping people alive. Because growing up in the neighborhood that he grew up in, he knows there's real consequences to these types of threats and actions. Mm -hmm. And he just decided that he wasn't going to allow that to happen anymore. Mundo is one of these folks that just when he makes a decision, he's not going to let things happen. And that's essentially what he's grappling with now. And, and he stands by the decision that he made. He says he doesn't have any regrets about the choices he made. He just regrets the sadness and the obvious outcome of what was going to happen.
0: And as, as we go through the story, like, there's, it's, it's brief because, I mean, there's, you know, this could have been, like, like a 40,000 page book, it seems. But as it seems to be going through the story, uh, Mundo becomes a man more of responsibility where, you know, he, he, there was the talk of how he was imprisoned for a felony conviction and he was out and he sort of turned his life around to be responsible for himself and those around him and take care of things. But then when he's faced with this situation that ended with him telling you about Lulu, I feel like I betrayed her as a friend. Like in the world that he, came from like how can that be explained like that's it just seems like for the point i guess Tisha, the, the question is like for most of us while you said he would have gone to the police if it was the other way around with uh ramon wanting to have his wife killed at the end of the day it's like that should be like a clean break deal breaker for the rest of us of like somebody in like your group of friends is like i want to have the right. of them killed but it seems, but, right. but he comes in and says i still feel like i betrayed her
1: Well, he comes from a place that has a code and it's a very strict code. Um, You know, he he loves that movie, Blood In, Blood Out. And the Mm -hmm. title of that movie is very relevant. It's this idea that you have to give blood to join the gang and you have to give blood to leave the gang. In other words, you have to commit a violent crime to join your gang. And then the only way out is to die. And he, we call him a former gang member, but a lot of folks will tell you that you never actually get to leave the gang. You might try to walk away, but you're a member for life, whether you like it or not. Yep. And so, you know, he joined when he was 12 years old. And part of the code was you never go to the police about anything. If you've got a problem, someone's giving you a hard time, you know, there, if, if someone's threatening you, you come to the gang the gang is the enforcer not the police officers and going to the police officers is essentially treason right. and he really laid that out for me during our interview and and he said you know you've got to understand going to the police is a very very hard decision but it was to save his best friend's life
0: but how can how can someone exist like in that balance where as we as we were just talking about how he sort of turned his life around like you, you're in one side of you, you keep your family protected and cared for, but you honor the other side of you that is still needs to live by a code, uh, but it's a code of a life that he wanted to leave behind. And it's one that clearly he didn't leave the code behind as you express how conflicted he was through all of this.
1: Well, he, he would tell you there's two very important people in his life. One is his girlfriend who gave him the ultimatum, and he will be very quick to tell you he was acquitted. He was not convicted of that felony mm-hmm. charge, even though he spent 14 months in jail waiting for the trial. Right. Um, he, as soon as he got out of jail, his girlfriend, who he then later married, uh, was like, you got to pick me or the neighborhood. I'm not doing this anymore. And he really credits her with giving him consequences, um, mm-hmm. I can't get into the details of what those consequences are because I really have to be careful about protecting his identity. Sure. And I'm very uh, cautious about making sure I don't give anyone enough pieces that they could figure out who he is. But I can tell you there were some very serious consequences that if he picked the neighborhood that he was facing. And so he chose her. And then mm-hmm. within, you know, very quickly after that, he stumbles essentially into Ramon. Mm-hmm. And Ramon had uh, at this point, he'd received uh, very specialized uh, gang intervention training and anger management training and And that I think was really key to their relationship is Ramon wasn't just a guy training kids how to be boxers. He was a guy that had specialized training to communicate and listen and not judge someone like Mundo. And Mundo, as you heard, I mean, he really responded to someone taking an interest in his life. So that double whammy helped him say, "I I can walk away from the neighborhood. I can go have another life. And from that moment, he's never looked back. That's a different thing, however, from going and cooperating in an undercover sting operation with the police. That I find fascinating, and um, as he said, he's reconciled to it because it was saving someone's life. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole other thing to just, you know, walk away from the gang, but then to cooperate with the police, even though it wasn't a member of his, of his former gang that he was working with the police on. He, you know, his former gang had nothing to do with this entire story. Right. But just the act of talking to the police is is breaking the code.
0: Well, that's part of it. I mean, I know you said be careful about. The consequences of if he stayed in the neighborhood, but right. what I think it would—I mean—is there any way like, could you describe the consequences that they feared if it found out that he did speak to the police? Meaning that
1: oh well, there's like, real consequences. No, I mean, I mean he, like, like, he,
0: like it's it's different than just like, hey, if you come back to the old neighborhood, we're just not going to wave to you. Like it's you know, it's it's deeper than being shunned. Oh,
1: it's much deeper than that. So when unfortunately. Um, uh, another media outlet revealed enough information about him that people could put it together. Yeah. He, uh, he really did receive some very frightening threats. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he's had his life threatened and people that are very close to him threatened uh, repeatedly. And what, I mean, it's worth mentioning. I mean, we had a very serious conversation that when this, you know, when this story comes out in the magazine, he's going to have to take measures again to protect himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but, but those measures do not include calling the police
0: oh, right.
1: and the constable's office and many other people who were involved in that undercover operation. Cause that was a very sophisticated undercover operation. Mm-hmm. Um, but once again, I need to protect identities there. All of those folks say they are ready to be there if Mundo ever needs them because they recognize the consequences of what Mundo was facing and he's never reached out to them he's I was just never say, spoken to any of it's them it's a call that's never going to come yeah the the once the last time he saw lulu was when he says goodbye to her after mm-hmm. the undercover video
0: yeah. and
1: then he never really sees many of those people afterwards he had to go through some of the you know processing of the of the evidence and the information and, yeah. and talking to the police but that was And he walked away. He was done. Mm -hmm. Were there
0: any repercussions, Tisha, for the news outlet that outed Mundo and the undercover officer involved?
1: Uh, I know a lot of phone calls were made. And I know that uh, the stories were pulled uh, Mm -hmm. so that they couldn't be uh, reproduced. And this is all information I'm getting from the actual constable's office. This is coming from the constable's office. Um, Excuse me. I don't know beyond that if there was ever legal action taken so far. I haven't seen anything to that effect. Um, but, you know, there's a there's a journalistic code out there. Sure. If people are going to trust us uh, with their stories, we need to do whatever we can on our on our end to protect them, because, I, you know, every every reporter is different. But I, I rarely allow someone to do an anonymous or silhouetted interview like mm-hmm. we did with Mundo. And, and and you really have to be facing life or death right. or possibly losing your job because you're willing to be a whistleblower, you're willing to come forward. And in Mundo's case, he meets that criteria, obviously. He's already had his life threatened. Um, but, you know, as a shout-out to all of the other reporters out there, you really have to take this stuff seriously. You can't say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll blur that video or Mm-hmm. Yeah, we won't say his name. When we put our piece together, because there's a companion piece to this honey 60 I mm-hmm. went frame by frame by frame to make sure that there were no names of undercover police officers or any way of identifying Mundo. Um, and you can hear me now. I'm still very, you know, I don't want to tell anybody too much about him because I don't want right. people to be able to piece it together. It's It's my responsibility when I take on the responsibility of interviewing someone like that to follow through all the way to the end. And the end may still be years away from now.
0: It also, it's the other part, it was move on from, from Mundo, it's, as you mentioned, his love of the uh, the movie Blood In, Blood Out, it, to the point that the Paco that he invented was a character from the movie. Right. And that really speaks to Lulu's obsession where, not that she had to be like a fan of you know, movies to known that, but what he sold her, it seems that she was so focused. She would have believed anything that was told to her to be a path to getting what she wanted was her estranged husband's assets.
1: Right. I mean, the biggest missing piece for me is what was Lulu thinking. Mm-hmm. And I have, I have tried to get her side of the story. I've, I've written her multiple letters in prison I've asked prison spokesmen to to reach out to her. Um, I've tried to talk to whoever represented her in the past. And um, there's a lot of speculation about why Lulu did what Lulu did, but really only Lulu knows. Um, Mm -hmm. She did plead guilty. Uh, She did claim that Ramon abused her, but everyone that I have spoken to doesn't believe that for a second and that's the police officers and family members and prosecutors Um, there was quite an investigation that was done leading up to the sentencing hearing because until she pleaded guilty they thought they might have to go through a full-blown jury trial and the prosecutors of the case knew that she had already tried to accuse Ramon of you know a variety of crimes and so they knew that they needed to do a full throttle investigation into Ramon's background as well. Mm -hmm. And they put him through his paces. I mean, he he did a lie detector test. I mean, they looked into all the allegations that she made, and they never found um, anything that would support what she said. Um, So that then brings it back to what you do know, which is what she says in the recordings to Mundo and what she says uh, to the undercover police officer, and it comes down to money. It yep. simply comes down to money and greed. Um, and that's what Ramon believes. He thinks it's about greed. Right. And one of the most telling quotes for me, because it came spontaneously, I didn't ask him a, a specific question. It was, in, it was in a very quiet moment when we were looking uh, at the field where the, the grave had been dug, and we were standing there, and he and I had been talking for quite a while, and then there was sort of a pause in the conversation, and he spontaneously said, you know, my God knows what happened. And he's mm-hmm. comfortable with that. And he's, you know, he's a religious man. And, and, he, and that for me was a very interesting moment that he's willing to go out there and he says, I recognize that people say, well, she, how could someone want to kill you? Why not just divorce you? What kind of anger did she? And that's why the abuse allegations would make sense. Except mm-hmm. he, you know, nobody says that there's there seems to be any truth to it that that it, I, I even had the prosecutor of, the, of her case say that it is it was very systematically done to build her case if she ever got caught.
0: Right. Was there was there ever like I mean you may, you mentioned the piece how that's when she knew that she'd been duped or whatever. But was there a reveal like was there ever a reveal where he walked in the room or? a detective said, we have to tell you something, like, he's fine. Like, what did...
1: No. So they recorded all of their interactions with her until she goes to jail. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's quite a bit of uh, audio and video recordings that don't make the E60 piece that I've, I've obviously watched it all. And mm-hmm. when they first arrest her, you, you can see it in the E60 piece. I mean, she... She's telling them when she last saw him, and she's telling them this story, and she's, you know, claiming she hasn't seen him in a week, and her mother's there, and she's asking her mother if her mother's seen her, and the mom's like, no. And the police, by the way, do believe that the mother and the daughter didn't know what she was doing. Um, Well, that was one of my
0: questions also, because there's a a quick scene painted where Mundo hears her talking about a situation about her daughter's friend that has a friend that is a guy from Mexico that'll chop somebody up. But they they just think it, like, the conversation ended and then it was just between Lulu and Mundo? Like, they didn't have any inkling
1: that so she was pursuing is this? So the daughter minor at this point. She's under 18 years old. She is a teenager. And I mm-hmm. asked that very specific question to both the police and to the prosecutor. And they did, of course, look into, were there other members of the family who are aware of it? Because there's also a teenage son um, who is not on the video but is very involved at this time and mundo would talk with lulu uh before he would text back and forth with ramon when he was pretending to be paco Mm -hmm. um the family would be there and mundo says in his interview that the family is just cursing you know ramon left right and center they they are just so angry at ramon um and the, the family was aware that something was happening, but according to the prosecutors and the police, they, the daughter specifically was a minor, and she. it's one thing to talk about something. It's another to actually act on it, mm-hmm. and all of the evidence they found was when it came to actually following through on something like this, it was Lulu and Lulu acted alone. In some of the recordings, you can hear her talking with Mundo um, about members of her family and how she doesn't want to tell them why she needs the money because she's trying to collect enough money to pay, to pay the hitman. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So so, yeah, yeah, their level of hate, like, Oh,
0: I could kill that guy, but not really.
1: Right. I mean, you've got a teenage daughter and a 40 something year old woman Mm -hmm. and the the mother is doing the, the primary plotting, right? And yep. so the question is, how much is a teenager culpable in that?
0: Now, another thing: the the way the story begins, um, you know, the the macabre, uh, the the setting in the grave with the photo uh, was that was Lulu's reaction? Something that they needed from a legal perspective, or just something they wanted as like a detail to really seal the deal
1: well i mean that's why we ended up doing this story is uh, sadly mike as a news reporter i have been covering murder for hire plots for most of my career Mm -hmm. um i i was telling some folks for me it is the most unusual of the usual crimes or the most uncommon of the common crimes because every place i've ever worked and i've worked you know all over the country as a as a local news reporter, inevitably, I end up doing a live shot in front of a motel saying, well, this is where the plot went down, that they were mm-hmm. supposed to meet up. And it's always for a very small amount, you know, hundreds, yeah. maybe maybe a couple thousand dollars. Um, and so, sadly, Murder for Hire happens a lot more than I think people, people are aware. What makes this one so distinct, and the reason why we wanted to dig into it, is why go to the place that they went to with the photo? Mm-hmm. Because that's pretty unusual. Um, and that photo is just so graphic. If you don't know that it's fake, it, it's startling when you first yeah. see it. And, um, and, and they basically said she was so beautiful. She was so compelling. And she could turn on this personable character that they were concerned a jury wouldn't convict her, right. and that yes, they had the payment, and they had the intent, but they needed to show that she had no regret, even they were startled, they were really surprised when she started laughing
0: that yeah that was um, one of, that the was black widow that was something that was interesting because I always find the perspective of the law enforcement community so exactly so vital. Because let's be honest, I mean, there's some they, they do a tremendous amount of great work that I'm sure gets them very satisfied. But their perspective is unique because these men and women spend a career dealing with so many people often on the worst days of their life. So yeah. for them to come out of this and say, have a perspective that you're speaking of, of Lulu, I found to be chilling about the way that she carried herself.
1: I mean, they, they, and when I say they, I talked to multiple members of the constable's office, and it's worth mentioning that the constable's office is made up um, by officers who used to work in the Harris County Police Department, which is the city of Houston. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are officers that have seen a lot. Yep. Uh, the Woodlands area in Spring, Texas, and and that northwest corner of the Houston suburbs, is, is a bedroom community. I mean, they don't begin to see the kind of crime uh, that they see, you know, in in South Houston and 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 the areas uh, throughout the city uh, where there is a lot of gang activity. But these guys had seen all of that, so they were, very, you know, they were very aware of, of what they were handling here, and they were very struck by her lack of emotion. I mean, that quote from Lieutenant Atkins nails it. It's that she shows no sympathy, no empathy. And that for a police officer can often be the most chilling thing that you see. They never expected that laughter. And, you know, to listen to the police tell the tale, it's the laughter that really convicted her. It's, it's her, it's her happiness that he's gone.
0: Right. And essentially that mountain of evidence in her counsel probably saying you probably need to plead guilty or you're going to get the death penalty.
1: I don't know if she would have gotten a death penalty. Um, or it would have been on the she, table. He wasn't murdered, but she, she was facing some pretty serious prison time. Sure. Um, and she, and, and to speaking to the dynamic of the Houston area, um, my understanding based on interviews I've done with folks in the legal community, there is the Woodlands area. And the in the C- Montgomery County is is the county there. Those juries can. Or I had one person refer to them as, as hanging judges and hanging juries. She wouldn't have obviously faced that consequence. But it's this idea that the juries there are tough, and yeah. uh, you have a better chance of getting off or getting a reduced sentence in a place like Harris County, where you know the city of Houston, than you do in this more suburban conservative area. And so um, for whatever reason, her people decided that they would, they would plead. And, and, and part of the, the strategy there is she, she received a 20 year sentence, but on mm-hmm. good behavior, she can, she can get out um, in a couple of years here. I think, I think it's, it's like the middle of the 2020s. She'll be mm-hmm. eligible uh, to be released. And so it's not a true 20 year sentence.
0: So, Based on the like the community that you were like the just the different circles that you were exposed to in investigating this piece, how close do you think it could have got how that this story could have turned, meaning how close to was this a story of a homicide of a local boxing gym owner who must have just messed with the wrong crowd and left behind this beautiful grieving widow?
1: To hear Mundo tell it, it was pretty close. Mm-hmm. Why, why he decided to act was it occurred to him very quickly that if he didn't play the role of middleman to obtain the hitman, she mm-hmm. could very easily find someone who would. Right. And so, while you're while watching the, um, it was technically in the interrogation room, but I think it's better to describe it as the interview. The very first interview between Ramon Mundo and Mike Atkins with the constables' office, um, it becomes very apparent that there is some urgency here. That they're realizing that Ramon could be in some real, uh, real trouble, and that they need to worry about Ramon's safety while they're trying to put together this what ultimately becomes the sting operation. Um, Because they were not assured in the beginning. That she wasn't working with other people, that Mundo right, okay. wasn 't the only person that she was talking to, and you know just for folks who are not familiar with you know the what was going on at that time because this was this was in twenty fifteen this mm-hmm. this was at the height of the Mexican drug cartel um just the awfulness that's been happening in Mexico like a slaughter, right. Yeah, and I mean it's still popping up in the news regularly here in the United States. But I I remember looking up numbers for that year in particular, and I saw statistics that as many as twenty thousand people were being murdered in Mexico um, in twenty fifteen for the for because of the drug cartel wars that were going on. So. Mm. Houston is not that far away, and there is a large um, expat community in this part of the world where this story takes place that Mundo took this very, very seriously. Now, regardless of what's happening in Mexico, Mundo grew up in a neighborhood where this happened. Right. Um, I mean, he was shot six times in three different occasions. Uh, as a as a very young man, I mean mm-hmm. he'd already seen his fair share, so he took this stuff very seriously when he heard it, and he really believes that Ramon was in deep, deep trouble. Ramon will tell you he's still worried yep. he's still concerned because Lulu does have family. Um, meanwhile, the constable's office and uh, the prosecutors, while they're being very vigilant and they're taking it very seriously. They don't believe that Lulu's family would make the mistake to try to retaliate again. I'm sorry. I'm sorry um, yeah, Lulu's family wouldn't make the mistake to retaliate against Mundo or Ramon. That 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 would be not a smart move because they right. would catch them very quickly.
0: But it also but it also seems that there's you could argue that like history shows there's a bigger danger in someone looking for revenge than there is looking for money.
1: I don't know. It depends on who you talk to, Mike. <laughs> what compels people to murder people?
0: Well, at times you know,
1: love, money, revenge. Sure. There's all kinds of reasons out there and But sometimes you know, revenge think,
0: revenge falls in the category of, you know, nothing left to lose.
1: And I think Lulu has a lot to lose still. And that yeah. was how Mundo looked at it. If you if you if you believe what Mundo says, she's got two children, she's got family, and it was important to him that no one died. And mm-hmm. that includes Lulu. Yep. Um, you know, I mean, if Lulu had gotten involved with the wrong people, that could have been a consequence as well. You know, yep. if Mundo was still with his gang, who knows what would have happened.
0: So we almost basically that moment you paint where after Mundo has a workout, where he's just not into it and he comes up to Lulu and he says, I think I might know somebody like that's sort of him like holding all the power at that point and deciding like with my history and what I know and who I know and what I can do, I'm going to put everything my, I'm going to put everything I believe in on the line to basically save everyone's life.
1: To hear him tell it, he figured it all out in a half hour workout session. As he was hitting that bag he realized what actions he was going to take, how he was going to do it. He was going to start making these recordings so that Ramon could have whatever evidence Ramon needed. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he was crossing a line at that point. I think the one thing that he didn't quite foresee during that workout before he goes and says to Lulu, I know somebody, um was how involved he would get with the police. I don't think he realized that he would then get pulled in, A, to the police department or the constable's office, and then, B, that they would ask him to continue to do the undercover recordings. But this time they were also involved with it. Um, I, I think it got a, over his head there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if he had known that, would he have walked into the constable's office with Ramon? I don't know. I'm not sure he would have followed through if he knew that he would have been as involved as he ended up being.
0: Well, this is, it seems like a story that, in frighteningly, that might actually not even be completely over with everything that you've said about.
1: We hope not. I mean, we at ESPN have done everything that we can do um, and will continue to do to try to protect people's identities. Um, and the and the folks involved in the story uh, also know that it you know that it's coming, and they're doing everything that they can do to protect themselves. But yeah, there are real life and death consequences here, and and my hope is that it's over. I hope that we never have to talk about this story again. That nothing happens. Well, that's what I hope.
0: So do we. And this cl- this closes this current chapter on this tale from this story from another amazing collaboration with E60. Tisha Thompson, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories Podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories Podcasts.